Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Welcome to Curious with Josh Peck. Start the show. Guys, welcome back to the Curious Podcast. My name is Josh Peck and I'm your host. And your name is Listener. And that's what you do. You listen. Guys, what a, what a great life. What a great world that we're living in. I mean, can you believe this? Just a little slice of audio heaven, you know, brought directly to your phone. Come on. Could have been so much worse. We could be alive in the 1700s. That would suck. I don't care even if you were like fucking Alexander Hamilton or like someone really cool in the 1700s who was like at the precipice of a revolution of... Of, of doing things that will be remembered for all of time. I, I don't care. You had There was no plumbing. It was, you know, food was like around, but it was probably scarce in moments and couldn't just go to the store. Maybe they had like some quasi, you know, version of a restaurant, but it, it wasn't, there, not the, re- there was no Cheesecake Factory in 1784. Don't you fucking try to tell me there was. I don't fact check on this podcast, but here I am out on a limb. And I'm imagining that there were no P.F. Chang's in the 1700s, okay? It was probably like a really shitty restaurant with, you know, bugs on the floor and one, maybe two items. You know, plain, really plain. No sauces, nothing nice, nothing fun, you know, no ambiance, that was not, that's not, come on, that's not my idea of a nice time. So I'm glad, I'm glad I'm alive in 2020 where this is my job, where I can podcast with you guys and just talk and bloviate and I don't have to be worried about going and securing my dinner for the night. How would that work? I got to stalk an animal? Are you nuts? I don't even call people back. I have to stalk something? What? Yeah, right. Right. That fuck is going to see me coming. I'm going to stalk a deer. On In what world am I smart enough to outsmart a deer? It ain't going to happen. That fucking thing is going to see me coming a mile away. It's going to look like the Wile E. Coyote cartoon. It, I swear to God, it's, it would be like Roadrunner. And then what do I do? How am I going to kill this thing? A spear? A rock? That's all they had. Maybe a musket, okay, a bow and arrow. That's cute. That's mad cute. Look, you could give me a compound bow. Yeah, I know what that is. You could give me like a $1,000 bow and arrow signed by Joe Rogan today. And I promise you I wouldn't be able to kill anything. And that's like incredible modern technology. But are you talking in the 1700s? It's probably a crappy piece of beechwood and twine. Definitely imbalanced. Not a killing machine. I'm not hitting nothing with that. If anything, it's going to fall out of my hand mid-shot. And I'm going to shoot myself in the foot. 
And then I got narrow in the foot. Infection, death, no penicillin. <laughs> bad, all bad. You got to cut that foot off. And then I'm no foot guy? Fuck. Listen, I get a little annoyed. I got to talk about Drake and Josh so much. Imagine being no foot guy. It's got to be the only thing people would ever say. What happened? Ah, you know, hunting accident. Yeah? Mm, yeah. And then you hear like one guy at the end of the bar. He fucking shot himself in the foot. <laughs> Shut up, Dan. I don't know any 1700s names. James, it's that one. George. I'm just naming people that I know who signed the Declaration of Independence. <laughs> Thomas Jefferson. Shut up. Oh, man. My engineer, producer, Kevin's waiting for this right now. I'm recording it in my car, Kevin. Sorry, man. This is last minute. I always wait till Monday afternoon to send it to him. I don't feel great about it, but I know I'm weak. You know? I'm not good at delegating. I get a lot done, but it's always like in these, you know, incredible bursts of efficiency, like three seconds before a deadline. And I'm sure Kevin doesn't appreciate it. He'd never let me know, but I'm sure he's like, uh, you know, a little lead time would be nice. Really? Again in the crunch? Luckily, this is not exactly high art we're making over here. You know what I mean? It's fucking, you know, me, talk, talk, talk. Kid won't shut up, you know, for 90 minutes. So, you know, I don't feel that bad, but Kevin's a great guy. I love him. Anyway, guys, on today's podcast, Ben Greenfield is fucking back. You know Ben Greenfield because you're alive and you know that he is a genius in the nutrition, fitness, exercise world. He's got so many specialties from biohacking to supplements to Eastern medicine, you know, he might get mad at me because he might be like, I don't, you know, you're giving me all these monikers and, and I, I don't feel comfortable with that. But uh, this is me telling you what I think of Ben Greenfield, who's a friend of mine, and I just think he's brilliant. Joe Rogan thinks he's brilliant. Other people think he's brilliant. What more do you need to know? Um, I loved him so much on the pod last time, and we've since become good buddies, and he's just a wealth of information. He has a new book out called Boundless, which is, it's so good. You guys need to get it. Um, you can go to his website and find it. I will make sure to have a link in my liner notes for the episode. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this. So here's Ben Greenfield. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60.
Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Yeah, we got sushi on Friday night. Yeah, I'm looking forward. Yeah. That's, our, my, that's my spot. I go there all the time. I take the kid and... My mom loves it. It's, it's yeah. a good spot. I got it. I think I convinced. Uh, have you listened to any of my podcasts with Dr. Matthew Cook? I is it has he been on recently? Because I listened to like the the three most recent ones. He's been on my podcast four times. He's brilliant. He's like yeah. my favorite doctor in the world. <laughs> and uh, he's gonna go to dinner with us. Oh, amazing! He's, he's a, like he's like Doctor Strange. He's so cool. What what doctor of like. He's this blend of traditional Chinese medicine and like regenerative medicine. So he does stem cells. He does ketamine. He does like he fixes knees with just like one injection. He like just like moves the nerve over. He's probably the most brilliant doc I've ever talked to. And he's a ton of fun too. Wow. Yeah. And we're going to record a country music album on Saturday because he's in town for a medical conference. And he loves country music, and he, he trains all these you know, big-name like musicians. And stuff. So I got access to a studio. We're going to go, and he loves country music. He comes up to my house, and we jam sometimes. So we're going to go into the studio and record. An entire album in one day? No, like, uh, like I think we're doing three, three or four songs. An EP? Yeah. yeah. What's I love it called? It. An EP. An EP. And I do not know what that acronym stands for, but I know it's about four to six songs. Or... Well, there was a Slim Shady LP, mm-hmm. right? I don't, I yeah. think, I'm not, I don't even know what that is. Could make it up. Yeah, LP. Entrepreneurial production. Hmm. A little uh, entry proposition. Entry proposition. Mm. I like that. I like Maybe that. it doesn't stand for anything. Maybe it's just ep. Cause yeah. Sure. Because let's live. I don't know. Um, I am always impressed every time I see you. By your level of lean fitness, Ben Greenfield. I thought you were going to say my giant guns. That too, but I like, like guns. It's unbelievable. I dream yeah. of being that lean. Being lean for me, uh, that the number one thing that I do is every single day. Like even Christmas Day, I do this. I get up and I don't eat anything. I usually wait till like ten a.m. to eat anything, and. I always fast 12 to 16 hours a day, right? Mm. So if I finish eating dinner at 8 p.m., I'll not eat again until 8 a.m. Or if I have a, if I get up and have a snack at midnight, I won't eat again until noon. So I get up in a fasted state. I do a half hour aerobic exercise. Like today, it was a no walk, matter walk on the beach in the sunshine. Uh, and and the, the easy thing about that is it doesn't take a lot of willpower to go for a walk or to like do a little bit of yoga or even like getting in a sauna counts. So it's not like you're doing a soul-crushing workout at the gym, 
or at CrossFit or F45 or anywhere <laughs> like that. Um, and then you finish with two to five minutes of cold. All right. So for me this morning, I went for a 30 minute walk by the ocean and then I jumped in the ocean for five minutes. Wow. Right, so the cold kind of polishes off that release of fatty acids from adipose tissue to keep you lean. And the only other thing you can throw in there that amps up the fatty acid utilization is caffeine. Right, so you wake up, fasted, cup of coffee, go on a walk, two to five minutes of cold, and that's it. And you really think that that's sort of like the underlying what's that the magic? That starts everything. Really? Yeah. 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 But the problem is um, – a lot of people like won't take the time to squeeze that in before work or a lot of people will do the walk, but they don't like to get cold. So they won't do the cold. And a lot of people will do that, but they'll do it like two or three days a week. Mm. But if you can do that every day, you're essentially training your body to be a fat burning machine at the beginning of the day. Probably one of the other keys that helps out with this is at that point, I don't eat any carbohydrates the whole day until dinner. Most right? so days? Every day. And no matter what? Well, like Christmas Day, we have waffles. Like there's there's a few little days like that where something might sneak in. But the the saving the carbohydrates until the end of the day means that you're oxidizing fats the whole day, right? And some people will be like, "Oh, you're more you're more insulin sensitive in the morning. Morning's the time you have carbs, and then you don't eat carbs all day, or carbs at night make you fat because you're about to go to bed." But the thing is, it's true that your body is like physiologically more prepared to handle carbohydrates in the morning. It is more insulin sensitive in the morning. But if in the afternoon or the early evening, you do anything that artificially induces an insulin sensitive state, like swinging the kettlebells or doing a quick high intensity interval training workout or playing a game of tennis or soccer, like anything mildly explosive, or even just saving your weightlifting for the end of the day, that shoves you into that same insulin sensitive state that you were in in the morning and it turns all your muscles into basically tanks for the carbohydrates that you have at night. And it's a cool scenario because what's the meal that like we're going to go to sushi on Friday, right? Like yeah. what's the meal that tends to be the most carbohydrate dense or the most social or the most kind of like flexible? Usually it's dinner. That's the time when, when you don't want to worry about grabbing the sourdough bread at the steakhouse or like the rice with the sushi. And you're primed for that if you have an afternoon to early evening workout and furthermore, carbs help you sleep. They cause this release of serotonin that helps you to sleep. So in my opinion, best scenario is wake up, fasted, easy aerobic cardio, follow it up with a cold shower, don't eat carbs all day, do something active in the later afternoon or the early evening, then have all your carbs, go to bed, sleep like a baby, wake up, rinse, wash, and repeat. And that's how I stay lean. And at what point do you eat a Chipotle burrito? I'm not asking yeah. for myself. <laughs> I don't so I don't like like for me cheat means I'm going to go get like quadruple the amount of of the buffalo Dang cauliflower it. at Erwan I'm going to order you like say a, this, I'm going to order a 30 ounce bone in ribeye instead of an 18 and ounce and the sprouted bread and the good wine and the dark chocolate I've heard this and I can't believe how even disciplined you are within your cheats I cheat on the good shit you yeah, really I do. but I think part of it for me is like that's that's how I was, I was trained as, as, you know, a nutritionist and, you know, biochemistry and, and biology and all these things in college that for me, like, it's hard for me to not, you know, when you show a smoker, like the insides of their lungs, it can be kind of powerful. Like for me, I just know what's happening inside of me when I eat the vegetable oil dripping Chipotle burrito and, you know, the, 
whatever, GMO corn or the glyphosate or whatever else, like I can't put that out of my head when I'm eating it. And I'm like, oh shit, I'm damaging my body for like the next 19 days. And so for me, it's like that knowledge has kind of crippled me from being able to enjoy some of those foods. Mm. But knowing how good the good foods are for me, again, like freaking like I, I ate at a Bel Campo the other night, right? And they've got like tallow fries cooked in lard and, you know, grass fed, grass finished ribeye with like this wonderful, like a, I think it was like a blue cheese butter or something like that. So, I mean, like you can, you can still enjoy life and eat some really good food. It's interesting. No. And first of all, I don't know why I said Chipotle because I'm not even a fan. Um, no, and I may have just thrown them under the bus. I don't know if, if their shit's GMO or- They're not uh, worried about this yeah. podcast. They yeah. should be Chipotle. Yeah. Never going to be a sponsor. <laughs> but like, you know, first of all, I'm interested when you mentioned the GMO corn thing. I, I had a guy on the pod named Jamie Metzel, who's like a futurist and really brilliant guy. And he was like, the, and he was on Rogan talking about this. He's like, this whole idea of GMO is ridiculous. He's like, every scientist worth their weight in salt has said that GMO is safe. He's like, and by the way, the idea that you're avoiding things that are, that are in quotes GMO is ridiculous. He's like, everything on earth is genetically modified because the corn crop 500 years ago was like a few kernels on a weed. Like mm -hmm. we've genetically enhanced everything and that's just the evolution of agriculture. Thoughts. Yeah, it's semantics though because selective breeding is genetic modification, but that's also just farming, right? Mm. Like that slow process, not the bullet train to making, you know, the giant whatever purple tomato that glows in the dark because you've used CRISPR type of technology to genetically modify that seed or that plant, but like selective breeding of tomatoes over a long period of time so that naturally occurs, mm. right? The same as with a human being, we could say like, and, and this, this is all based on epigenetics of human beings. Like we could develop a really robust, strong, muscular baby four generations from now, if we start taking mom and dad and, you know, they're weightlifting, eating organ meats and colostrum and living this super active lifestyle in which they're loading their bodies with weights each day. I mean, eventually you've got little Vikings a few generations down the line. Have right? you and seen that's, those kids like little Hercules? Yeah. Yeah, They're weird. you've even seen kids like like there's this German kid you can find pictures of online. He has the myostatin knockout gene. When you knock out myostatin, that that gene is responsible for regulating muscle growth. And so you, and it's kind of sad because like you get these ripped kids, but they die early, right? It's kind of like a form oh, of gigantism almost. Kind of worth it. Or myostatin knockout bull or myostatin knockout dog. Like there's a myostatin knockout rat. So. Google, Google these. They're so pretty cool. If I got ripped, but I had to die at 50, well, could have a good life. Maybe worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, sorry to interrupt. You'd have the, the gun show on your tombstone. It's not the worst. Um, the, the, the idea then is that that would be a more natural method of genetic modification through selective breeding mm. over, a, over a generational timeline. We could take a, a human embryo, as they've done, for example, in China, and use CRISPR technology to genetically modify it. And I forget what the fallback was for that in China, but the, the children were more susceptible to something. I don't recall if it was... Teasing. It was, uh, yeah, <laughs> they, they, they just cried at least twice the amount of the other baby 
disease. Now, they, they were actually genetically susceptible to something. I, I don't recall if it was AIDS or like it, it resulted in some kind of a downstream blowback that they didn't expect when they genetically modified via CRISPR technology. What is these CRISPR? Babies. CRISPR is a type of technology where you can go in and basically cut out certain genes so you can keep certain proteins from being expressed. It's almost a way of very selectively modifying genetic expression. Unfortunately, it's kind of like the butterfly effect, right? Like you don't know for sure if you modify one gene, what that's going to do to downstream patterns. Even bad genes have, and I'll come back to the tomato in a little bit, but even bad genes have protective effects like sickle cell anemia, right? Folks who have sickle cell anemia who say live in Africa are protected against malaria. Right. Well, you take those same people and you put them into a, a context that does not have mosquitoes, like they're living in whatever, Montana or something like that, then that sickle cell anemia, all it does is make them suck wind when they're trying to you know, go on a hike, right? So that gene doesn't serve them well, but at a time, it was beneficial. Um, there's, there's another example, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on the name of it. It's, it's like a, it's like a lactose intolerance gene or something like that, that, that is protective against some of the proteins in milk. But the, the, the sickle cell, sickle cell anemia is, is a good example. Like that gene is protective against malaria, right? So some of these bad genes, if you knock them out, you don't know, like downstream, there might be some other things that are caused. Uh, oh, diabetes is another interesting one. There's this theory that diabetes evolved as a protective mechanism during some kind of an ice age or a period of time in which humans were exposed to very cold environments because if you're in a chemistry class and you increase the amount of particles in a liquid, then it increases the freezing temperature of that liquid. So if a human body has more sugar in the bloodstream, the blood would be less likely to freeze in very cold conditions. So maybe there's a diabetic gene that developed as a response to humans being in very cold environments that nowadays doesn't serve us quite as much. Um, wow. Yeah. And, and, and some of this stuff is not genetic. Some of it is, is basically developed uh, due to environmental factors. Like, for example, um, if, if you look at like hypertension in the, in the deep south, for example, and you look at, at the African-American heritage that is pretty prevalent in the south, well, if you're in a very like warm, sodium-poor environment – Right, eating a lot of citrus fruits and fibers, you know, such as they might do in the indigenous diet of, of Cameroon, West Africa. And then you put that person into an environment where they no longer need those robust sodium conservation mechanisms that they had in the very, very hot environment that was low sodium. And they're instead in like a high sodium Waffle environment. House, yeah, hometown Waffle buffet, house. Cane's chicken exactly. tenders. Traditional all, Southeast the, junk food. The holy trinity of delicious foods. Hypertension is going to manifest because they would hold on to that sodium far more readily, mm. right? Based on mechanisms that developed from an environmental standpoint for where that person came from. So we know with humans, genetic modification is kind of playing with fire, right? And, and there's some downstream issues that might occur. 
With fruits and vegetables, we know that there's some change in the microbiome upon consumption of a genetically modified fruit or vegetable. It's doing something, and in some cases, some of it has been shown to increase gut permeability, almost like the like the leaky gut type of scenario that you'd get in response to, to glyphosate or inflammatory foods or stress. Like a lot of people have poor digestion due to this fact that the gut can become more per- permeable in response to certain factors. And genetically modified organisms can cause that. Whether or not that's going to result in serious issues, I don't know. But I'm playing it safe. Like if I have the option between non-GMO corn and GMO corn, I'm just going to choose non-GMO corn. You know, many beets and papayas and foods like that, they're very difficult to find non-GMO these days. Many of them are, are genetically modified, not selectively bred, but actually genetically modified to be like, you know, resistant to herbicides and pesticides or, you know, have some other kind of modification. And the the data that I've seen on the effect of the human gut gives me pause and makes me question whether I should consume it. It's kind of like kind of like sucralose, right? Like sucralose has been shown to impact the gut microbiome. Right. And even though there there's not bodies in the streets, there's not people coming down with like bleeding intestines or, you know, full blown celiac disease or something like that from consumption of sucralose, when I see that it impacts the microbiome, specifically by decreasing the amount of favorable bacteria in the gut, well, if I can choose between a sucralose gum and a xylitol gum, I'll choose the, the xylitol gum or gum flavored with monk fruit or, or stevia rather than sucralose. So in some of these cases, it's like, why choose the GMO food when there are other options and there's some evidence that it might cause harm? I just don't want to, I don't want to play with fire. I've been a fan of yours for many years, listening to you on Rogan and then falling in love with your podcast. And I know you to be like the real deal. And we, we, you talk about that doctor who we're going to have dinner with on Friday who I can't wait and, and how brilliant he is. And then in, it seems as though in social media culture especially, it, there's been this um, wave of charlatans mm. and people projecting themselves to be every – I can't tell you how many girls I follow on Instagram who are like, I healed my gut. Like I healed myself. And now I can heal you. And I'm like, I think you had bigger issues, darling. Like, mm-hmm. does it, how do you discern who the charlatans are? And does, do they just piss you off this whole, like people that are picking up health and wellness as like a hobby and, you know, projecting themselves to be authorities? Yeah. Is this same Instagram girl showing her butt next to a kitten on the beach? That part I don't after mind. After having healed her gut. That yeah. part I don't mind. There's always some kind of an inspirational message, like a highly <laughs> inspirational message under the photo just yes. to make it look sweet and innocent. It's all bullshit. Yeah, yeah it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, this hair isn't real, by the way. This is a toupee. Is I always it? put this on right before I walk in the door of your office. Hmm. So I do have you fooled. I like yeah. it. Yeah. So what do you got going on I'm under I'm actually there? bald and I have a gut. I'm wearing a like one of those corsets right now to hold in the gut. So. <sighs> It's where can I buy it? It's, it's Amazon hard to maintain. Prime? It's hard to maintain. You could probably get off Amazon. Prime? Yeah. Put an affiliate link in the show notes. I'm make, a prime member. Make so. some corset money. Two day. Yeah. Two day delivery. Um so it is so easy now, you're right, to paint a picture of you being an expert, especially in fitness, because what do we associate with being an expert in fitness? A nice body, right? And granted, in this day and age, especially with a little better living through science, right? Some, some steroids, some peptides, some SARMs, you know, any number of, of hormone replacement type of compounds or just a staggering amount of time spent in the gym, right? 
hours and hours longer than what you're saying that folks can or should do on your Instagram page. Like, here's my 20 minute workout and here's my 3% body fat and my gains, bro. Right. Cause you your know, dad's paying your rent. Yeah. In reality, these folks <laughs> yeah. are living in the gym, you know, on testosterone and DHEA and God knows what else. Uh, and, and I'm painting with a broad brush here. There, there are some fitness influencers with nice bodies who are natural and who have attained those through pretty, pretty natural ancestral methods of exercise. But that's the exception to the rule. And when you're trying to identify whether or not someone is a charlatan, for me, it comes down to looking at what came before Instagram right? Were they actually working one-on-one -on -one with a large number of clients in a scenario in which they were seeing many different body types move and looking at everything from a functional movement screen to a biomechanical analysis of, you know, hundreds and hundreds of Joes and Janes coming through their personal training studio or their gym or their physical therapist clinic before they started to just slap photos up on Instagram of what is working for them without having experienced whether or not this is even something appropriate for the general population. And then are they educated, right. right? You can get a personal training certification right now online in a weekend via open book tests and say you're a certified personal trainer, right? Or you can go through a training organization such as the National Strength and Conditioning Association, the NSCA, or the American College of Sports Medicine, the, the ACSM. And there are a few others, but they require a college degree in an exercise science-related field such as kinesiology or biomechanics or physiology in order to even attain that personal trainer certification. So when you see that person, you know, A, they've done at least four years of university-based coursework in anatomy and physiology and, and movement and, and exercise and nutrition, and B, you know that they've topped that off with a pretty rigorous personal training certification, and, and many of these certifications have like a 60, 70% pass rate versus the you know 99% pass rate. Of, of the open book online weekend tests. Could you imagine so, if you're the one percent? You have to be a fucking idiot. Yeah, really yeah. dumb, right? Yeah. You weren't paying close attention. You failed open an book. open book test. Yeah, it's yeah. Really. Upsetting. Granted, you could take it again, though. <laughs> right, right. Fair. After, yeah, you just pay the money, take it again. Um, so, so yeah, I look at education. Um, I look at real world experience, and then you know, the, the, the difficult part too, especially in the fitness industry, that isn't so much of an Instagram problem, but is a problem nonetheless, is there's a lot of experts out there, authors and podcasters and, and bloggers who are using for their, their bio photo, like a photo of them taken like 10 years ago, that one time when they were fit, right? right? And they're still riding that train, even though, and I go to a lot of these fitness conferences, I mean, they're, they're inflamed, they've let their, their nutrition slide, they've made it, right? There's no longer any pressure to maintain their body or their physique or their fitness because, you know, the way that they figured out how to portray themselves to the outside world is that of a, of a fit specimen. And so anything they say is taken as, as you know, gospel. God's truth, gospel, right? Even though they're no longer even, even in that type of shape and are in fact like pretty inflamed or, or you know, not, not, to, not to stereotype. I, I don't think that being overweight is unhealthy per se. I think that having a certain amount of body fat can be healthy, but, you know, inflammatory, unhealthy, like visceral body fat, like those kind of issues, you know, that, that's another problem, you know. And so sometimes yeah. these folks aren't even on Instagram because, like, they just they don't even have the, the body anymore that you would need to, to make an impression on Instagram or to back up that what you're saying might be true. Because so. at the convention, right, 
after the day is done, they're at the lobby bar at the Marriott. Yeah. Sucking down five or six mixed drinks, lots of sugars. Right. Bad. They're going right to bed. They're not working out after. Can I tell you what I don't like? Let me tell you what I don't like. Puppies. Puppies are great. Okay, good. Fan of puppies. I don't like when these people who took a one, let's say they took a one-year homeopath course. Mm. They're reasonably educated in some, some, you know, Eastern medicine and alternative medicine. And then they discount Western medicine and basically just like the, the medical field with just like a big sweeping like they don't know what they're talking about and I'm the one to heal you and you can't trust that. And I'm like, listen, no doubt that there are some nefarious interests with pharmaceuticals, that there are a lot of drawbacks and side effects and that not every doctor is perfect. But even a shitty general practitioner has gone to, you know, got their bachelor's, went to med school, did four years of residency. It's like, you can't discount that, right? If I break my arm, I'm going straight to the, like, the, I'm walking straight past the homeopaths and the naturopaths and the guys with the paper bags of herbs hanging from their clinic and going straight into an allopathic medical doc. If I get an aortic aneurysm, if I, I mean, in many cases, like, like you know, Giardia or MRSA or some of those things that I have had, like, if you let that go far enough or if you get it and you need to, to fix it fast before it comes becomes a serious issue, like, you go straight to antibiotics and to... Uh, you know, actual surgery, you know, to be able to cut out areas. I mean, like there, there's a variety of scenarios in which you want modern medicine. You know, my wife had a C-section. If she hadn't, I probably wouldn't have my twin boys or wouldn't have my wife, right? And we wanted to do a home birth. We wanted to do the water birth with the little blue, you know, slippy slide turtle pool in the bedroom and the doulas. Gross. And, yeah, everything. <laughs> you know, we did the, the Lamaze breathwork pattern where the husband like holds the wife and helps to breathe her through the birth. Like, Here's my question with those things. Who cleans up the pool after? Yeah. Right? That's uh, fucking gross. I don't know because it didn't happen, right? Like we wound <laughs> right. up driving to the hospital and getting a C-section. And yeah, some of the reasons that I didn't want to go to the hospital wound up ensuing. Like they took the kids at night when mom was sleeping and they were giving the kids soy milk formula, even though I specified that I wanted them to get breast milk only, you know, and they had the kids on glucose solutions under bright lights, you know, just a lot of stuff that I felt wasn't that great for, for a young baby to experience, you know, just a few days into this world. And so there were some frustrations at the hospital, but at the same time, they either saved my wives, my, my, my wife's life, uh, or, or my children's lives. And so there's, there's definitely a place for allopathic medicine. There's definitely a place for pharmaceuticals. Where I think the problem lies is when we are turning to those as quick fixes or the only fix when there are indeed more natural, less harmful alternatives. If you take something like metformin, Right, metformin is like the darling of the anti-aging industry right now. You know, is why? it a diabetes drug? It's a it's a diabetes drug increasingly being used off-label for anti-aging. Uh, Wired magazine did an article on it a few years ago about how you could extend life for a nickel a pop. Right, and there's a lot of a lot of anti-aging and longevity doctors and researchers who I know who use metformin as a way to decrease or inhibit mTOR activation with increased amount of mTOR activation being associated with a pro-anabolic, pro-growth state that could accelerate aging. 
you know, in the ways that you would downregulate mTOR would be via fasting, via exercise, uh, via mitigation of excess amounts of carbohydrate or dairy intake, you know, things that would put you into that constant pro-growth state. Mm. And metformin controls that quite well. And it does a very good job at controlling glycemic variability, right? like the up and down variations in blood glucose throughout the day, which is actually healthy to control. Uh, but at the same time, it can cause depletion of vitamin B12 levels. It can cause, uh, to a certain extent, depending on, on the dosage used, what's called lactic acidosis or, or a net acidotic state of the body, which can be unhealthy for normal metabolism. Uh, it can cause some disruption of the gut microbiome, similar to like a sucralose or, or a GMO-based food. And many of those issues can be skirted by, you know, for example, supplementing with vitamin B12, eating a relatively alkalinic diet, taking a probiotic. But the two most recent studies on metformin that came out show that A, it reduces your VO2 max, your maximum oxygen utilization during exercise by about 5%, which is pretty significant when you consider that you're born with an inherent VO2 max that's only trainable by an additional 15%, right? Mm. VO2 max meaning like Lance Armstrong has a VO2 max of like 80. You know, the average fit person is at 60. The average, you know, non-fit person is at maybe 30 or 40, right? And, and all that's trainable by about 15%, but metformin knocks 5% off of that. And then the study that just came out a couple of months ago shows that it inhibits your body's ability to build muscle after exercise, meaning that you can go and work out. And if you're on metformin, you're actually not going to produce muscle fibers or mitochondria in the same way you would had you not been on metformin. Interesting. Now, that all being said, returning back to kind of like the allopathic versus the naturopathic approach, there are a variety of herbs and spices that work very similarly to metformin. Uh, there's one that grows in my backyard called organ grape root. Uh, you dig up the root, you carve it off. It has this nice deep, dark orangish yellow color, and you can turn that into a tea or you can, you can shave it, you can powder it. And that drops blood glucose. Berberine, very commonly known herb that you can get at just about any, uh, you know, Walgreens or CVS that can act very similarly to metformin having, uh, you know, last night I went, I went over to a guy's house. He's into ketosis. And so he, he knows about this, but, uh, we had apple cider vinegar and stevia in sparkling water before we had dinner because apple cider vinegar can decrease the blood glucose response to a meal. Ceylon cinnamon is another a couple teaspoons of Ceylon cinnamon in a smoothie in the morning that increases insulin sensitivity, very similar to what men, what, uh, what metformin would do. Um, without bitter, the side effects, without the side effects, exactly. Bitter melon extract is another, um, even like having a, a nice cocktail with some bitters in it prior to a meal. Like if you're going to go out and, and have a, have a drink prior to dinner, you order something very bitters forward. Like, uh, I've got this one that I order called, uh, Ben and jitters named affectionately after yours. Truly it is, it is gin with a splash of house bitters over ice and a squeeze of lemon and a little bit of club soda, right? So it's a very bitters forward, clean burning alcoholic drink, but it also enhances what is called the first phase insulin response to that meal. So but, my blood glucose doesn't go up as much when I have dinner. But you've just glossed over something. Mm. Your gin, the, the, the gin. Your gin guy. I like gin. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. I'm not super. Um, I'm not super picky on my brands. 
know, just like Tank Bombay Ray. or Tanqueray or whatever, or if there's like a special local house gin or, or local gin. Why does gin get a bad rap? And granted, this is coming from a total neophyte because I haven't had a drink in 11 know. years. I didn't know gin had a bad rap. It does. Really? A little bit. I think like maybe the hangover was, I think, isn't, doesn't it have a somewhat of like a hallucinogenic effect? I think like, that's green absinthe. That for I sure. Think. Yes. But the problem with alcohol I'm thinking is, GHB. Sorry, okay. sorry, sorry. sorry. <laughs> the other G. Alcohol would be the sugar, right? The sugar can cause a hangover because of the inflammatory response. That's why if you're going to have a margarita, right, get tequila, fresh lime juice, some club soda, and hold back on, on the mixes or on the, uh, the agave syrup, for example. Um, the sulfites, right? Like most of the wines that are grown in the U.S. are very concentrated in sulfites. They also, in the U.S., like the big California cabs, they allow for about 72 different preservatives and chemicals to be added to that final product. And so you're drinking a lot of other chemicals that can also potentially cause a little bit of a hangover response. Most of the wines in Europe are grown via more organic, what are called biodynamic methods, microfiltration, lower levels of sulfites. They even grow the grapes in Europe, especially Italy and France, with less water. Why you get a less sugary grape, less concentrated in sugars, also a more hardy grape because it's been grown in drier conditions, so it's higher in antioxidants. It's higher in resveratrol, which gives you a lot of those antioxidant benefits of wine and possibly may even have some longevity-enhancing properties. And so you get like a good organic biodynamic wine or a low-sugar cocktail or a low-sulfite cocktail. And then there are other things that you can do. Um, I actually, uh, in, in this book that I just wrote, there's like a whole like sidebar on like the party protocol, right? like what to do before the party, during the party, after the party to limit how shitty that you feel the next day, right? So for example, before you go out, you take glutathione, right? Like liposomal glutathione to enhance your liver's ability to be able to process a lot of the, the alcohol type compounds. And fats too, right? Does it fats, process fats? Fats can help. The problem is once you have fats in your system, it takes a lot more drinks to feel the effects of the drink. No, I mean, right? doesn't glutathione help break down? I, I got an injection of it once at some like med spa. I don't think it helps break down fats. They were uh, like, this is our fun weight loss cocktail. And I was like, put it in me right away, please. I need man, this. you fooled. I they, did. You know what? I mean, you could argue that if the liver is processing hormones better, that you might lose weight. But that's kind of, that's kind of a, a far leap. Glutathione would be more for the antioxidant effect. And it is. It's a, it's a healthy compound. Um, but, but taking that before you drink. And then the other one that works really well is uh, blocking histamine. They make these histamine-blocking enzymes, and one of the reasons people get a hangover or a headache after they drink is from the release of histamine in response to alcohol. And you can buy these histamine-blocking enzymes, like there's one that's literally called histoblock, right? And you take that before you drink, along with glutathione, and you're helping out your liver to process any of the compounds in the alcohol, but then you're helping your histamine levels not to get as high. Wouldn't that be like Benadryl? Doesn't that block histamine? It does, but Benadryl has some other kind of nasty side effects. It, it affects sleep architecture pretty heavily. You know, I, you call it nasty. I call it. I'm I'm knocking out for nine to ten hours. Yeah, you sh you should try it. Well, what I what I use for sleep is just very high dose CBD, and then this this GABA containing supplement. So GABA is this inhibitory neurotransmitter. Uh, it's called Sleep Remedy. It was designed by this doctor who was making like supplements to help Navy SEALs fall asleep when they were super stressed out. So I take that and about a hundred milligrams of CBD. 
and I'm out like a light and you don't get the weird like in and out of consciousness stuff that like a Benadryl or, or you I know, like I get the lack that with of melatonin sometimes. Too. Melatonin can cause that. Yeah. Melatonin can cause that, especially if you, there's like a gray zone of melatonin, like a little bit can really help people sleep like 0.3 milligrams and 60 plus milligrams can really help people sleep. And then kind of in that in between land, you kind of go in and out of sleep or you take it. And then when it wears off, you wake up as right. soon as it wears off. But then the other one that works really well for alcohol is activated charcoal. Like I always, if I'm going to go out and I know I'm going to have more than two drinks, I've always got six of these big, like activated charcoal horse pills on my bed stand for when I get home and you swallow those right before you go to bed. And if you do the glutamine and the histoblock before, and then like low sugar, bitters forward, organic biodynamic drinks while you're out, and you take this activated charcoal after, it helps out a ton with how you feel the next morning. And if you like looking at your poop, it becomes black as night. <laughs> It does. I was just, I was telling you, I was just in Cabo and, and two of my buddies got sick down there. I gave them both activated charcoal. They'd never used it before. Mm. And they came up to me the next day. They're like, dude, my poop was, was like dark black. It's like when you have beets, right? Sometimes yeah, I have then beets you think you're and dying. I've forgotten I've had the beets and you look in the toilet and you're like, oh shit, I just bled out my anus. Yeah, I'm, I'm internally in big trouble, bleeding. Man. Oh wait, it was that beet and goat cheese salad at lunch yesterday. I want to ask, um, before we get too far away from it, when you talk about like the anti-aging drugs and the metformin and whatnot, you know, and your boy Rogan is a big proponent of TRT, testosterone replacement therapy. And, you know, it seems very on trend, right? People doing, you know, taking these supplements in ways in which to combat age and, and your body breaking down. And yet, to me, it seems like, A, I can, it gives you a look. You look like you're on it no matter what. If I see mm -hmm. a 55-year-old dude who's overly vascular, I'm like, fuck off. You're t you are shooting something in your ass. Square jaw yeah. and the eyebrow line tends to be very exaggerated. And then the, the last one, in addition to the vascularity and the jawline and the eyebrows, is the shoulders tend to look almost like they have like a bowling ball shape. Yeah. Like super round shoulders. Those are all dead giveaways that somebody's you know on – on juice or, or some type of hormone replacement therapy or steroids or what have you. And guys my age, I find, especially like actors and whatnot, are all starting to take human growth hormone because mm -hmm. it just shreds you out and yeah. it seems like a quick fix. But like, let's talk about that because it just seems like there are no free rides on this. There earth, aren't. Right? There aren't. So, I mean, growth hormone returns to that same concept of like the myostatin knockout gene that we were talking about earlier or the increased activation of mTOR. Anytime you accelerate growth or you place the body into a constant state of anabolism, it's going to grow, grow, grow. But A, that accelerates aging. It increases the rate at which your telomere shorten and B, it can be carcinogenic because that's what cancer is, right? It's a state of a clump of cells going into this pro-growth type of activity that just never stops. And that's, that's why one of the best things to do if you had cancer or wanted to prevent cancer because of some kind of a genetic risk would be to fast, to limit your amount of carbohydrate intake, to be careful with dairy and to use it as more like a condiment and to have periods of time where you're really helping your body to catabolize. You know, it's even one of the reasons 
reasons. I was talking earlier about how I stay lean year round, but that's also a wonderful method to kind of spark cellular autophagy at the beginning of the day, right? Because you're kind of keeping your body just a little longer in that catabolic state, which can be very helpful for longevity. It's not going to be a good strategy for getting swole, right? Because you're taking yourself out of that, that potential for anabolism. Mm. But it's, it's important if you're trying to strike the sweet spot between staying lean and also living a long time. Now, the, the hormones or, or, or really the, the, the compounds like testosterone or progesterone or DHEA, those are a little bit different because they tend to decrease pretty dramatically as you age. Like for a guy, when you reach about 35 to 40 years old, your levels of testosterone begin to decline. When you get married, your levels of testosterone begin to decline. When you have kids, it happens again. Like there's a lot of things that can cause testosterone to decrease. And there are ways that you can stave off that decline. Natural things that you can do that I think everyone should do before they have any business using testosterone replacement therapy. For example, you can replace minerals and micronutrients that tend to become depleted, and when they become depleted, they decrease your body's ability to make testosterone. These would be things like creatine, zinc, boron, magnesium, um, DHA is another. Uh, DHA like you would get from from fish oil, right? These are basic nutrients that you can supplement with on a daily basis to give yourself the building blocks that you would need for testosterone. Um, in addition to that, the legs have a very high concentration of androgen receptors, which allow you to be able to interact with the testosterone that you're making. So doing strength training for the legs, doing heavy lifting for the legs, deadlifts, squats, barbell back lunges, exercises like that as a staple in your routine can help you become more sensitive to the testosterone that you are making. Sleep is very important for testosterone, like having good sleep architecture, you know, going to bed at a, at a decent time, blocking blue light at night, sleeping in a cool room, you know, not working on your computer in your bed, doing all these things that help you to be able to get good sleep during the night. Um, and uh, there, there's a few other things, high-intensity interval training, like sprinting as an alternative to chronic cardio, right? Like that can help to keep testosterone levels elevated. There are biohacks like uh, the infrared light therapy and the balls that I've caught flack for. But if you look at the actual research on it, I mean, it does show that when you use near and far infrared light, and there's like a wavelength, it's something like 700 to 800 nanometers of light that actually causes the Leydig cells in your testes to produce more testosterone, right? So there's a lot of these things that you can, you can clump together as an alternative to hormone replacement therapy that are smart to look into first, because once you start on hormone replacement therapy, eventually your pituitary gland will begin to decrease the signal that it's sending to your testes to make its own testosterone. So once you start on that, you're kind of stuck on it for life or you have a very hard time getting off it. Like you go through a period of low libido and kind of like a blah, you know, low energy type of phase as you're weaning yourself back off of what you started. Is that why like guys like fighters or athletes who take it then when they're cycling off have to go on like estrogen blockers? Yeah, Clomid. Yeah, exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's so that they don't get like the the man boobs and the Exactly. Because your body just starts to aromatize all these testosterone in, in, into estrogens, et cetera. And, and that kind of 
returns to the overlying concept of testosterone replacement therapy. If you were going to do it, you don't just take testosterone willy-nilly or you know get injected or get some kind of a pellet. A, you need a good doctor who's able to test for things like estrogens, uh, test for DHEA, test for progesterone, test for free testosterone and total testosterone to see where the issue lies, and even test for something called DHT, which is uh, it's it's a testosterone-like molecule that's very anabolic, but that can also cause like the the balding and the aggressiveness and some of the other issues. So. In, a, in an ideal scenario, you're getting tested every quarter to make sure that nothing's getting unbalanced from whatever testosterone replacement therapy that you're on. And then secondarily, it's very popular uh, to get injections. Like we all associate testosterone with like, you know, jamming the needle into the butt cheek or yeah, into the thigh or whatever. Some guy named Rick's giving it to you at your Planet Fitness exactly. locker room. Exactly. Right. Tanned Rick. Yeah. He's got a beautiful tan. Beautiful tan. Yeah. He's 68, but he looks about... Mm-hmm. 42. Yeah, big white tennis shoes. And you're yeah. like, is Rick gay? Yeah. Because he looks at me weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But and, that's and, okay. But he's got beautiful whey protein farts. He's got beautiful yeah. whey protein yeah. farts. Yeah. And he's just got a bunch of weird shit in his duffel bag. Mm-hmm. Just weird substances. Just in case. Shaker bottles, tanning lotion. And maybe a gun. Yeah. 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 Possibly. A firearm. Yeah. Yeah. So so that's Rick. And Rick's got his <laughs> testosterone needle that he's supplying you with. But the problem is that that's a large bolus of testosterone that in no way matches what the human body makes, what's called diurnally, right? You have like this little peak of testosterone when you wake up and another peak of testosterone later on in the day. That's another reason why working out later on in the day can be favorable because about the time that second peak hits you around 4 to 6 p.m., that's a perfect time to work out. Right. In addition to that being a good time to work out if you're if you're going to have carbs with dinner. Right. But that being said, then if you were going to take testosterone, in addition to monitoring your levels, the best way to do it would be a gel or a cream that you apply twice a day. And that's what a lot of the better hormone replacement therapy physicians are using now is a cream. So like an AM, PM cream, you put some usually on the scrotum in the morning, again in the evening, and that's matching more closely what you would make yourself and also reduces the, when people get a big injection of testosterone, they'll often like get angry or aggressive for a couple of days after because they just have all this testosterone in their bloodstream, then it gradually decreases and then they get that big bolus of testosterone again versus natural smaller amounts each day. Right. Yeah. What, uh, I'm interested with like the adoption of the ketogenic diet and it being so on trend, did poor Dr. Atkins create the ketogenic diet before anyone else did and just get a bad rap? Cause it's very similar. Ketogenic diet is like, it's part of our ancestry, right? Like producing ketones to get you by when you don't have much other fuel on board. Like if you were in your loincloth and spear and trying to hunt down the woolly mammoth, but you know, it's miles or days ahead of you and your body has to figure out how to survive. And maybe you don't have fruit or berries and you're not walking under a tree that has a nice big honey hive, you know, for you to get a bunch of calories all at once. Well, your body will shift into ketosis. And these ketones are a preferred source of high ATP producing, very efficient fuel, meaning the reaction that allows ketones to produce energy has a very high cost of energy associated with it. So small amounts of ketones can go a long way for your brain and your heart and your liver and your diaphragm. It's why eight years ago, I started to get into looking into ketosis because I was competing in Ironman triathlon. And I thought, well, geez, if this is like such a rocket fuel, you know, could I do a race and not only be in a state of ketosis, but then dump extra ketones? 
ketones into me, right? Using, using exogenous ketones like ketone salts and ketone esters that are now being used by uh, the US, uh, the, the, the DARPA, the defense agency, and by Tour de France cycling teams. Like these things work really well, but they're essentially mimicking this ancestral mechanism of ketosis as almost like a survival mechanism to allow us to be able to go for a long period of time without food. Now, when you look at a diet like the Atkins diet, it originated as a protein-rich diet low in carbohydrates because the absence of the starches and the sugars and the carbohydrates can accomplish two things. A, if your liver and your muscles are already full of carbohydrates because you're, you're eating enough calories and maybe you're not exercising that much, then we know that the body is very efficiently able to take the extra carbohydrates and turn them into fat. And in many cases, it's the type of fat that tends to be deposited on the waistline. You know, it's adipose tissue, it's visceral fat. And so once you get rid of those carbohydrates and replace them with protein, which is also more satiating, you produce less of those issues. And furthermore, carbohydrates carry about four times their weight in water and also salt. And so when you reduce the carbohydrates, such as you would when starting on an Atkins diet, you might lose 10 to 12 pounds right out of the gates in, oh my just, God. in just water so and fast. salts. Yeah. And, and so you know, it, it is a very popular diet because of how quickly you can get results. Uh, however, the interesting thing is it's not synonymous with ketosis because proteins can actually still raise your blood glucose and raise your insulin. And so a ketotic diet is a high fat, low to moderate protein, low carbohydrate diet, whereas an Atkins diet is a high protein, low to moderate fat, low carbohydrate diet. So mm. there's a difference between the two in terms of the macronutrient percentages of protein versus fat. Now, I don't think either are that great. Uh, the, the Atkins diet is typically comprised of an amount of protein that's over and above what the body actually needs. If you're listening in and you uh, you know your weight in pounds, which I suppose everyone but your European listeners should know. Uh, or stones. Stones. No judgment. That's true. Stones. Yes. I don't even know what I weigh in stones. I'm just going to say, what do you think? What do I look like? 16. Two, two and a half. 16. Oh, wow. I, I think they're, it's about there. Oh, thank you. What do you like? One, 165, 170? I'm actually 185 right now. No, stop yeah, it. I put on 13 pounds this summer. I'm like, like 195. That? Mm -hmm. That's sad mm -hmm. that you look like that at 185 and I look like this at 195. I'm doing yeah. well. I'm, I've leaned out a little bit since the baby came. Yeah. yeah. I'm working harder. You look good. Thank you, yeah. you too, Ben. Yeah. Um, so the, the protein, if in excess of about 0 0.8 grams per pound, can cause an excess of nitrogen. And nitrogen can be a biochemically harmful waste product. And so you really don't need much more than 0 0.8 grams of protein per pound of body weight, even to gain muscle. Once you fall below about 0 0.5 grams of protein per pound of body weight, you do actually limit your amount to be able to have enough amino acids on board for normal repair and recovery and bone density and muscle growth. But it's 0 0.55 to 0 0.8. But when you look at a traditional Atkins diet, it's 1, 1 1.5. I've seen values as high as 2 grams of protein per pound of body weight. So that is one problem with the Atkins diet. The other problem is it can often fall into this like if it fits your macros type of approach. What is that again? I-I-F-Y-M. If it fits, yeah, I-I-F-Y-M. If it fits your macros. 
I always have to double check. I love a good myself. acronym. Uh, yeah, yeah. Is it's uh, it, it's uh, just just to finish that thought real quick. The if it fits your macros means like the Atkins diet could just be like chicken wings and like non-organic meat that's like you know nasty feedlot meat you know grown on GMO corn and grain cheeseburgers uh, yeah exactly pork rinds yeah it's so like good. whatever if it fits your macros bro right and. Now the same thing is happening full circle with the ketogenic diet, right? People are like, I'm keto, but their keto is not the way our ancestors would have experienced keto, right? Like fasting, a lot of, a lot of like plant-based proteins in between those big boluses of meat that they might have encountered and, you know, periods of time where there just wasn't much food around inducing a state of ketosis. No, instead, it's like fat bombs, like chocolate, coconut oil, fat bombs that you keep in your freezer. So dumb. Keto donuts and keto bread and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, putting the half stick of butter in the coffee and, you know, all of those things can push you more towards a state of ketosis because of the massive amounts of fats. But that can also be very inflammatory for, for the gut. You know, it's, it's this concept, I believe what it's called nowadays primarily is dirty keto, Right again, this idea that yo, I'm just going to eat a bunch of fats, and sure, that heavy cream in my fridge might be you know chock full of whatever hormones and antibiotics that they were given to the cows, but it fits my macros of being heavy cream for a ketogenic diet. Right. If I heard someone say that they're dirty keto, I'd be like, we're going to fight. Uh huh. I'd be like, that is the most entitled. <laughs> like <laughs> that is the most uptown problem I've ever heard in my yeah. own dirty keto. It is a thing, though. It, like there, people use that to describe uh, a ketogenic diet that is basically kind of like a if it fits your macros type of Atkins diet, not taking into consideration the actual quality of the fats that are consumed. It's like so. I'm dirty keto, and my son Harper won't take his Ritalin, and yeah. my spin class got rescheduled. And my Tesla's dead again. <laughs> is is the myth of protein, was it propagated or like perpetuated by the the meat industry in the sense of like most of the world doesn't operate on a lot of protein, right? They're mm -hmm. eating rice and carbs and beans, even though beans can be protein dense. Like this whole idea, and it feels uniquely American that we were told that like we must have a major protein dish with everything we eat seems like over time it's becoming more and more slightly debunked. I don't know where it originated. It could have been the fitness industry, mm. right? Like that's where the that's where the idea of like pre and post workout meals originated. Right, you got to have your maltodextrin creatine protein shake as soon as you finish working out. Right, we know that's not true. Right, the really? body the body will repair and recover just fine over the next day of normal eating to appetite, and the only reason to eat right after workout would be if you're really trying to get huge. Right, but otherwise, there's no need for a post workout meal. As a matter of fact, if you fast after a workout, you can elevate your levels of growth hormone and testosterone more than if you just stop to, to stuff face after wow. workout. So the protein, kind of similar to the post-workout meal type of thing, may have just been trickle-down advice from the bodybuilding industry. I don't know. Could have been from whatever, what is it, like the Dairy Cattlemen's Association of I'm sure they America. perpetuated that. It's possible. But I mean, you could say the same thing about grains, right? Like subsidized grains and the carbohydrates being at the base of the food pyramid for so long. You know, part of that was political, 
you know, we, we know like the, you know, the studies from Ansel Keys back in the day that may have unfairly vilified some of the healthy fats that should form the base of the pyramid, especially for like, you know, young growing bodies that need bone density and, and neurons and DHA and omega-3 fatty acids, right? So I, I think that even though I'm, I'm not like a ketogenic evangelist, I'm not keto myself by the nature that I do have a bunch of carbohydrates at the end of every day. Like I, I'm more kind of like cyclic low carb than I am keto and I'm not testing my breath or my blood ketones, you know, all the time, you know, hunched over a monitor, just making sure I'm, I'm maintaining that whatever proper millimolar level of ketones. But I do think that most people do not get enough, uh, plants and, or, do not get enough healthy fats. And usually the problem is they're getting too much protein, too much carbohydrates or both. And I have no clue how the protein thing got shoved down our throat so hard. What I like, I think it was an Instagram post of yours a week ago, which was where you were talking about, I don't know whether you were having hazelnuts or pistachios or oh, something yeah. where you actually like ripped the nut out That's of its so shell yourself. Yeah. And you were like, I'm not sure nature ever intended for us to be able to take like a handful of mixed nuts mm -hmm. and shove it down our gullet. Like yeah. if you actually worked hard to get these nuts, the caloric, you know, expenditure would be huge and you'd only be getting a couple here and there. That was at um that was at a really cool course. It was called Awaken the Hunter up mm. in Kettlefells, Washington, and it's designed to allow somebody who doesn't even know how to hunt or where to start like to learn soup to nuts, everything, meaning that they teach you like shooting of a rifle and a bow and they teach you like the proper licensure and regulations, like what you need to actually have legally to go out and hunt. They teach you all the maps and wayfinding, like how to use apps like Onyx or even Google Maps to find out where you can legally hunt and what the terrain looks like and what the best hillside would be to walk up to find the right deer. And then they go into the actual sh uh, shooting itself and then the blood tracking and finding the animal, what to do then, how to do the field dressing. And then you take the animal back and you learn how to skin it and you learn how to butcher it. And then there's a wild game cookery course afterwards. And then just in case you're a shitty hunter, they have like a wild plant foraging kind of class at the same time. So you can learn like, cool. you know, all these different plants that grow. So it was pretty cool, but it was part of that wild plant foraging section where uh, the guy who was teaching the course, he wanted us to collect like some hazelnuts and some cattail starch. And um, he had like a, a little bit of like lard from the sheep to use for, for cooking. And we had like some elderberries and just like a mess of, of like plant-based foods. And the, the two most notable parts of it were a, that whole hazelnut thing. He's like, crack open some of these hazelnuts and he hands us like a bowl of the hazelnuts collected from the forest. And it takes like a minute to get one tiny little marble size hazelnut out of the shell. And I'm sitting there, I'm like, like, man, Nutella must have like a thousand hazelnuts in <laughs> right. one jar of Nutella. It seems like kind of an evolutionary mismatch that we can get that densest source of omega-6 fatty acids all at once. Not that omega-6 fatty acids are bad, but most people in their diets are like 15 to one or 20 to one omega-6 to omega-3 fatty acids. 
one of the worst ratios is actually with the paleo diet, right? Because it's all avocados, eggs, uh, meat, like nuts, seeds. It's very omega-6 forward, right? And doesn't actually have a lot of omega-3 fatty acids in it. Right. But the, this this hazelnut cracking open, it just seemed to me like, man, I wonder if the, if the human – biological system has yet adapted to the massive amounts of nuts that we're able to get from these nut butters and seed butters and, you know, the coffee blended with all the different, you know, nut based compounds. Like I just, I just wonder if that's healthy. The other thing that was kind of notable was like we got split into teams and we took this uh, cattail and kind of shave the stalk and shave the starch off the cattail and, you know, cut it into chunks. And there's like inulin inside the cattail that you can use as, as this starch. And we mixed that all up and formed it into patties. Then we took all those little hazelnuts that we were cracking. We're there for like two hours doing this. And we, we form all of that into a patty. And then we put it on a little bit of sheep's lard from the sheep that we had filled dressed the day before. And this cast iron skillet on the fire that they taught us how to start with just two matches, right? Like that was our, uh, on a rainy day, we had to figure out how to start the fire with two matches. And we worked and worked and worked. And we finally made this cattail hazelnut pancake with an elderberry syrup, like an elderberry sauce from the elderberries that we'd harvested to put on top of it. You know, and this is me, my wife, my two boys, and we finish. And the final product is like this, like smaller than my palm size, tiny little cattail starch pancake. Oh my God. Literally. And we all took like a tiny, tiny little piece, like on the edge of a teaspoon and ate it. And I'm like, you know what? It, it, that also seems like a mismatch because I think we just burnt between the four of us a good 4,000 calories for this tiny little 100-calorie cattail starch pancake. <laughs> I would much rather conserve energy and sit up on a tree branch with like a knife in my mouth wait, waiting for a, for a deer to walk under the tree than make cattail pancakes. Ben, you know what my wife and my son and I do for fun? <laughs> Chipotle? <laughs> we walk around Target. <laughs> Yeah. We walk around Target. Maybe we get a nice fountain drink, mm -hmm. you know, and yeah. we just, you know, we peruse. Maybe we'll go to a Home Goods. And you're out in the freaking forest. It's unbelievable. It's so cool. My babies versus your babies when the zombie apocalypse strikes. <laughs> Dang it. We'll well, if battle. your kid, if, if, if my kid survives, he could be your kid's, I don't know, yeah, a, it's, it's, a accountant. I, I think it's it's a balance, right? Like my kids, like I don't want them to grow up with silver spoon mentality, but I also, you know, like I know Joe DeSena, the guy that founded Spartan, and his kids are like getting up at 4 a.m. for their wrestling coach and their jiu-jitsu and their 500 burpees, and Jeez. they're only allowed to watch TV in Mandarin Chinese so that they <laughs> learn the Mandarin Chinese language. You know, my, my kids, like I like to get them out every once in a while to go out and do something like a wilderness survival course or make sure that before they eat breakfast, they go and feed the goats and the chickens or, you know, occasionally come with dad to a Spartan race and do like the kids version and make sure that before that, you know, for a couple of weeks, they've gone out and done some burpees or climbed a rope. But it's not like their life is, you know, like you know, like Yvonne Drago or something like that. And they're just like, you know, training every day to become little, you know, hard to kill warriors. But I think it is important that every once in a while, a kid go out and just kind of do something hard or learn something that's useful from a very practical survival standpoint. Well, it's funny. I interviewed David um, Epstein on my podcast who wrote this book, Range, Why Generalists. Yeah, it's a good yeah, book. Really good. Yeah. And, and he sort of – I really subscribe to that idea that, like, there are very few things 
where kids benefit from being ultra specialists at, at a young age. Mm-hmm. Like there's a much more of a winning percentage of kids who do a bunch of different things or are exposed to uh, a plethora of different experience and sports and athletics and then sort of hone in after puberty when they can kind of have a say in it. It also keeps them from becoming embittered that they did not experience life when they were kids because all their father did was put a golf club in their hands when they were two and that's all they experienced, you know, or, um, you know, or, or all they did was, you know, stand at the net like Andre Agassi and hit balls against a ball machine, you know, for hours on end, you know, then they grow up and they get into drugs and they fall off the deep end and they just try to, they try to go experience all those things that they missed out on when they were kids. And I think that David Epstein's onto something. I mean, like, you know, some of the, some of the better, happier athletes. Like if you compare like Bob and Mike Bryan, the doubles tennis players who are pretty, they, they, they come across as pretty like dynamic, enjoyable guys who have like a rock band and play piano and also are doubles champions, but have these other, other habits and skills and hobbies. And then you look at Andre Agassi, right? Who all he did was tennis and, and crystal meth. Yeah, and crystal meth. That sounds and, awesome, right? Go, yeah. Smoking a little crystal before Wimbledon? Mm-hmm. That would get yeah. me hyped. Yeah. Crystal, the new pre-workout. We're going to go down to Boletary Tennis Academy and get some dorms. Yeah. Down. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. down. Do you, are you, uh, do you think all of those pre-workouts are poison? N-O explode and all that shit? <laughs> <laughs> I used to work at a gym and I was working at the gym at the time when Redline was popular. Oh, man. Or Bang. Remember bang Redline? Bang's like the new Redline. Yeah. It's like made the, by the Redline they've guys. They've got birthday cake flavor. So good. I'm a margarita. sour warhead guy. Yeah. yeah. I've tried like two of those. There's just there's, there's something in the very back of my head, maybe not even the very back of my head, that's like, you know, danger, danger. <laughs> this, this is a carbonated drink that makes you feel like you had a few cups of coffee that tastes like a birthday cake. It's Something might not be healthy here, but I'm not <laughs> quite sure. I'm looking at the label and it's like, oh, it's not that bad. Like there's some, I think aspartame or something like that in there. But yeah, um, Redline was really popular when, when I was doing bodybuilding at the gym and you take that thing, your, your palms would get sweaty and your face would get red and you just go crush the gym. But it was almost like you, you could feel your heart just kind of going boop. Boop, 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 boop. Like there's like some some paraventricular contractions and some I, – I, I would love to see like Apple Watch data because Apple now has that new ECG function on their watch, the electrocardiogram function. And I'd love to see the results of some people who are using energy drinks and, and hitting the gym to see what's happening from a sympathetic nervous system standpoint. Oh, yeah. Um, the uh, – the pre-workout thing is, though, they're kind of split into two categories. One is the sympathetic nervous system stimulant category, the ephedra, the caffeine, the yerba mate, anything that would be considered a stimulant. Green right? tea extract is yeah, in a e- lot of those. Exactly. They pick you up. They mask fatigue. They give you a decent workout, but it's because it's just like jacking your system into overdrive. Then there are pre-workouts that kind of assume, okay – this person is not sleep deprived. They don't need a big shot in the arm from a central nervous system or an adrenaline standpoint, but they need workout support. Like they need more nitric oxide, right? So it's got beet juice or arginine or citrulline in it, or they need uh, more amino acids so they're able to push harder without exhausting their ATP stores in it. So it's got amino acids in it or creatine, right? Or any of these compounds that really 
really do a good job giving you a better workout, but without doing the harm of overstimulating the sympathetic nervous system or putting you into a scenario you probably have no business being in because you were too tired to work out, mm. but now you've artificially induced this state where you're not too tired to work out. Um, you know, and, and the problem with that is if you look at what a lot of smart people are using now to track their recovery, to track their readiness to train, it's heart rate variability. Have you heard of this? HRV? Mm-mm. Yeah. So, so a lot of the, you know, like I'm wearing the aura ring, there's another band called the whoop, uh, the, the Apple watch is using this now, but heart rate variability is simply a measurement of your sympathetic and your parasympathetic nervous system. There's a nerve that snakes through your whole body. It's called the vagus nerve. And that innervates the, the node in the heart called the, the sinoatrial node. It's like the pacemaker of the heart. So if you have good interplay between the sympathetic and the parasympathetic nervous system, then your heart beats the way that it's supposed to, right? It's not too fast. It's not too slow. There's like this mild beat-to-beat variation or, and this is what HRV, what the name implies, variability in the time between each heartbeat. It means that your vagus nerve and your heart are talking to each other really well. Now, when you take something like ephedra or caffeine or yerba mate or you know, redline or bang or anything else, you're all of a sudden jacking up the sympathetic nervous system stimulus to the heart. But what that does is it overrides the restful parasympathetic system and it decreases the HRV. And when you decrease the HRV, you can actually you can, you can create some electrical abnormalities in the heart that set you up for if you if you're really sleep deprived and mineral deprived and super stressed like having a cardiovascular incident during exercise i've seen know, that and really and it's really nerdy to go to the emergency room it wasn't room. rick was it once it was rick <laughs> but you ever find those guys like rick they you know they never work out they just hang out mm-hmm. at the gym yeah and they've got it's like a social club yeah they've got sweat they're working up. out but they're working out through osmosis right yeah that's fair yeah. But yeah, I've had friends who've had to like pre-workout overdose and mm-hmm. go to the emergency room and they, it's not a proud oh, moment. They, oh, you mean that they, pre, okay, so they overdosed on a pre-workout. They didn't like have a heart attack during the workout. Not, but. I, and maybe, maybe they just took it as recommended, but their body yeah. had some adverse reaction to it. And yeah, like they, I, I don't know if they ever had a proper heart attack, but there was enough... They, they had a cardiac incident, like something was amiss, some fuckery in their body. Maybe yeah. they were just had too much anxiety. Well, and- some of that stuff has like huge amounts of ephedra in it, which is a banned stimulant now in, in formulas because of the heart problems it can cause. If you uh, go look up an article that I wrote some time ago called I Tried Five Gas Station Dick Pills and This Is What Happened. You which did was that like for a, Men's Health, Yeah, right? it was, was for Men's Health and uh, they sent all these different gas station dick pills to my house and you know we tested the ingredients of all of them and essentially they're all you know despite having names like you know horny goat weed and tribulus and tongue and and what have you they're basically ephedra and sildenafil the active component in viagra right so you're just jacking up your nervous system and taking viagra simultaneously and it's, a, it's the same issue so you could probably save some money on pre-workout stimulants and just go to the truck stop and get get some of those those uh, horny goat weed pills solid yeah and who doesn't yeah. like that's doing... that's safe and sane advice by and, the way. and who doesn't like doing lap pull downs with an erection with an erection am i exactly. right exactly yeah um yeah. or or reverse <laughs> reverse leg curls reverse leg curls with a boner it's fantastic <laughs> Um, okay, so uh, quickly, and then I want to plug the new book. I um, So I'm interested to hear what you think of this is what I've been doing as of recently. I have realized that 
I really, I'm not a steak guy. I'm not a chicken, pork guy. I like fish. I become slightly pescatarian because I mm. realized that I always felt the pressure. I'm a carb guy. I'm about mm. to, I go to the steakhouse, I want the sides. Yeah. I want the mac and cheese and the Brussels spinach. sprouts. Yeah, I love the veggies. Broccolini. Delicious. Yeah. And then I would eat the steak or the chicken and I would actually sometimes force myself to eat more of it or like always have to get that on top of the Caesar or whatever salad I'm having because I felt the need like, well, that's the nutritious part and then I'll try to eat less of the surroundings. But in removing that and saying maybe my dinner is going to be some garbanzo or what is it? What am I eating? Chickpea pasta, mm. red lentil pasta. Hummus. Some salad. Tahini. Tahini maybe, yeah. you know? Yeah. And like I'm not going to – and maybe some, some a little sweet. And somehow my body reacts, I think just because I've taken out all those animal fats, the caloric density of that protein. And now I think – I don't know. I felt way leaner. I dropped some weight. Seems to be working for me. What mm-hmm. do you think? The, the maestro, my guru, my man. All right. What's the expert so you're say? Not, you're not eating shit that has eyebrows anymore, basically. Unless fish have eyebrows. I, I don't think I fish like some have sardines. Eyebrows. I'm pretty sure fish and birds don't have eyebrows. I yeah. Think. I think that's why people get pissed when you post a photograph on Instagram of like a deer that you killed, but they don't care when you're holding up like a fish that you fished. Right, because the fish doesn't have eyebrows. They never yeah. think maybe that deer was an asshole. Yeah, you know, maybe exactly. deserved it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, the uh, th- this is kind of the issue with like a vegan or a vegetarian diet. People feel really fantastic when they first start that diet because in many cases they've cut out a lot of shit, like CAFO feedlot, you know, pork and beef that's chock full of hormones and antibiotics and, you know, fish that's got metals in it in many cases. And, you know, depending on how far down the line they go, sometimes they're cutting out a lot of, you know, gluten and glyphosate if they're kind of doing like the more raw vegan type of thing. And, you know, they, they tend to clean up things quite a bit, but several years down the road can develop some amino acid deficits and mm. fatty acid deficits and creatine and taurine and vitamin B12 deficits that tend to make them gradually have lower and lower energy levels or poor and poorer sleep or they get lean but then all of a sudden they kind of start to get skinny fat too because they're just not putting on any muscle at all. And of course you have the the flip side, the super inflamed, you know, bodybuilder with the red face who's eating, you know, 32 ounce ribeyes for lunch and dinner and just way overdoing the protein like we were talking about earlier and they're in a state of nitrogen excess. So in my opinion, a, a properly structured diet includes meat, but not so much meat that you're exceeding that 0.8 grams per pound of body weight. And also not with the consideration that that meat has to be the sole source of protein, right? Like small to moderate amounts of nuts and seeds. Some of these fermented and soaked and sprouted grains, you know, quinoa, amaranth, millet, some legumes, you know, like lentils or, or soy, especially fermented soy like niso or tempeh or natto, like, like a very kind of like ancestral plant food-based diet with meat in there to fill a lot of the gaps, you know, like, like having 
a little bit of like a grass-fed, grass-finished ribeye here and there, maybe on top of the salad or wild-caught salmon, and even organ meats, which fill in a lot of the gaps as well because they're so nutrient-rich, like a little bit of liver or a little bit of heart or, or kidney or, you know, like a, a pate or something like that. Like that's – that's basically eating according to nature. And there are some people that follow a well-structured nose-to-tail carnivore diet. And it's actually a pretty nutrient-dense diet that doesn't have a lot of crap in it. And you know, in many cases, these people are also eating a little bit of bone broth, a little bit of raw honey, you know, some tubers and starches like pumpkin or sweet potato. And then there's also well-structured, almost like a lower-carbohydrate Mediterranean diet, right? Rich in fatty acids and some fish, maybe a little bit of eggs, some olive oil, plenty of really good whole rich vegetables and small amounts of healthy grains. And you could make an argument for either one of those diets being pretty appropriate. And mm. some of that comes down to ancestry, right? Like you're of Mediterranean ancestry, right? Mm. right so you're, you would probably thrive pretty well on a Mediterranean diet with the idea that a Mediterranean diet is not like Olive Garden and blocks of feta cheese and, you know, three glasses of wine a night. It's, it's instead, if you look at a properly structured Mediterranean diet, it's very rich in extra virgin olive oil and wild caught fish and a wide variety of plants, some elements of fasting thrown in, some days where there's protein restriction and you're not having a lot of meat and not having a lot of protein, right? There are there are religious elements of the Mediterranean diet and fasting-based elements of the Mediterranean diet that go above and beyond just like the you know cheese and olive oil elements of the Mediterranean diet. So ultimately, it comes down to choosing a diet that's ancestrally appropriate for you and then also paying attention to, to the quality of the sources of that diet and knowing that there's kind of more than one way to skin the cat. Mm. All right, let's let's plug the new book. That's why you're here. You're listen. You're a New York Times bestseller I know, author. I know. I mean, come on. It's not a secret. What the you fuck? What's that feel yeah. like? Is that like a black? Yeah. That's like a black belt, right? That's. I'm pretty sure it's a black belt with stripes. Who calls you when you hit the list? Does, is Last a, time it was my publisher. I was sick. on the I was on the patio at my house in Spokane. And he called. And I was so that was for Beyond Training. And I was like, oh, are you fucking kidding me? Because I had like – I didn't even expect that. And he was like, dude, your book's on the New York Times bestseller list. So I was very pleased. And um, according to the note I got this morning, the Boundless, which just went up for pre-order, it's on like the top 30 books on Amazon already, just like total books on Amazon. So I think it should do pretty well. But you know, I, I spent the past three years – Writing it. It was 1,200 pages when I turned it into the publisher, and we cut it down to 608 pages. It was turned down by every big New York publishing house because I didn't want like this 200 to 300 page flash in the pan airport bookshelf book. Like, I wanted a big, you know, it's like the, the four hour body on steroids, right? Like, I wanted this huge book with big, beautiful diagrams and illustrations and photos that's just like a soup to nut treatise of everything that you could do to get boundless, which is why I call it boundless, boundless energy at your beck and call all day long. So I cover longevity and anti-aging and fat loss and muscle gain and relationships and sexual performance and gratitude and even like mold and lime and mycotoxins and nootropics and smart drugs and all the latest biohacking technologies. Like I just, I put everything in the book to make it this big comprehensive guide and for the hardcover version, for it to be just like this big, beautiful coffee table kind of book that if you get it, 
is like something that you kind of enjoy for a good year. You know, it's not like a book that you'd finish in a week. Um, but yeah, it's finally, finally off of the publisher and the, the loads off my back. When does it come out? January. January. Janu- January, it will officially like be shipping to people's houses. But right now it's, it's available for pre-order at boundlessbook.com. Dang. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Can I get I'm a stoked. signed copy? I think I could arrange that. Really? Yeah. I'll have somebody sign it for you. What do you mean, yeah. Ben? You want me to sign it? Yes. Well, we'll talk after. Please. We can make some work. I'll bring a notary so we can authenticate bring, bring, your signature. Bring Rick. <laughs> bring Rick. He can I'll, notarize. I go everywhere. He is a public Rick. notary. Yeah. <laughs> um, final question. I ask everyone on the pod this. Obviously, I've asked you this before. Oh, shit. What? But maybe they've changed a little. Maybe we'll get a new one. Uh, what are the one or two Ben Greenfield commandments, truths that you have discovered that you would want to impress upon someone else? Ooh. I don't remember what I said last time. Good. So, A, know backwards and forwards your purpose in life. Meaning, if you have a single, succinct statement that defines what your purpose in life is, that can serve as a filter that you put all your your decisions through. Whether anything is a hell yes or a hell no, it's also what gets you out of bed in the morning. Not thinking I've got these emails to respond to, these hoops to jump through, these documents to sign, and this is what my day is going to look like. But instead, this is my exact purpose, and I'm getting out of bed this morning to fulfill that purpose. For me, my purpose in life is to empower people to live a more adventurous, joyful, and fulfilling life. To empower people to live a more adventurous and joyful and fulfilling life. And for me to wake up this morning and know, yo, I can, I can go on Josh's show and hopefully share some information that allows people to equip themselves, to tap into adventure or more joy or feel more fulfilled in this case because you know, maybe they've heard something that helps them get more healthy or, or have a body that they desire or, you know, or think faster or smarter. But identify your purpose in life with laser-like precision. And there's guys like you know, Mark Manson that gives you clues. Like in his book, I think he says, think about things that make you forget to eat and forget to poop. Right? And that's probably a good clue, the type of things that are going to fulfill you and that you should build your purpose statement around. There's guys like uh, Mastin Kip that wrote a book called Claim Your Power. That's like a full-on 40-day protocol for that you go through day by day to gradually identify what your purpose in life is based on thinking about things like, what did I really enjoy doing when I was a kid? Or what makes time go by really fast for me now? Like for me, when I was a kid, I love to read, I love to write, I love to teach, and I love the outdoors. Right. What am I doing now with my life? I'm doing a hell of a lot of reading and researching. I'm writing. I'm traveling around teaching and speaking and podcasting. And I'm like in kind of the physical culture, right? Like outdoors, movement, and fitness. Right. And so for me, that really helped me to identify those things when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm doing those things now that I really enjoyed to do when I was a kid. So you know, I'm, I don't know if I, if, if I can give you two or three, but I would say just That's that one, great. just identify your purpose in life, really clearly identify it. So you could write it down like an elevator pitch, like a one sentence elevator pitch, and then make your decisions, filter life through that purpose statement. Dude, thank you. Thanks for having me on, dude. Say hi to Rick for me. Oh, well, thank you. He's in my duffel bag over here. <laughs> That was it. That was Ben. How good was that, guys? Thank you for listening. Make sure you get his new book, Boundless. It's so good. You're going to love it. Um, Check the link in the liner notes and have a great, great week, great life. Because Uncle Josh loves you.
Ah, that was no way to end it, but here I am. That's how I'm going to do it. Bye.